Welcome to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, episode number 70. This week, my conversation is with Jason Beeler of Saigon Kick. Jason has a new album out, came out a few months ago. It's called Jason Beeler and the Baron Von Bielski Orchestra, and it's a fantastic album. I definitely recommend you check it out. Has guest appearance from people like Tyler Torrey from Queendrake, Bumblefoot, Devin Townsend, Pat Badger from Extreme, Clint Lowry from Seven Dust, and so many more guest artists. Now, this is his first, I guess, official solo album, I would say. And I, again, it is very impressive. So check this out. Jason and I have a conversation about the album. We talk about Saigon Kick and everything he's done in between. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And if you like this podcast, please make sure to go subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure to follow us over on Instagram or any social media. It, it, you can find us at R&R Coffee Show. Thanks for listening. Hey, man. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you this evening? I have absolutely nothing to complain about. <laughs> I just did a... Uh, you ever hear of a unbirthday birthday? No. Neither did I until the wife brought it up today. Apparently, it is from the movie Alice in Wonderland, and it's a birthday when it's not your birthday. So, wow. we we had a birthday with the kids, and it's nobody's birthday. I live my life like every day is my birthday. That's the so, way to do it. Exactly. So, well, uh, happy unbirthday, I guess. <laughs> Thanks. We had candles and everything. Outstanding. It was great. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Can you hear me okay? I can. And it looks like it's recording. I moved everything around in my studio, and right before I called you, I tested the mic and it didn't work. And I classic, was, classic uh, studio issues. And f- come to find out, I had the monitor mute button on. I always enjoy updating major software things in the studio right before I'm supposed to do something important oh, with Jesus. the deadline. You never do that, sir. No, I do that all the time. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So are you up in uh, North Carolina now, I hear? Yes, sir. How long have you been there? Uh, about five years, four or five years. Oh, so quite a bit. Okay. I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that until I, I spoke with Chris. I had Chris on the show and he was telling me that. Yes. I'm still more North than Chris. So I succeeded in that sense. Yeah. I'm over here by him. Are you in South Carolina? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a uh, kind of the Myrtle beach area. So not too far away from him. Okay. Awesome. It's, it's actually beautiful, uh, in Charleston. I haven't been to Myrtle beach in years. Yeah. Uh, but there's really not a lot here. A beach. So I remember it being kind of like a spring break destination. If I was it, I don't know about now. I'm I'm kind of old now, so yeah, I miss that now. So you got. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, um, I want to talk to you about, um, of course, your new album. Uh, well, it's not real new, but it's new, right? Relatively new. Uh, the way the world moves these days, I guess you'd call it a very old album. <laughs> but uh, it came out in January. Right, right. And it's Jason Beeler in the Baron Von Bielski Orchestra. Is that correct? Correct. You did it well. You win a prize, I think. What'd I get? I don't know. We'll have to talk to the producers later. <laughs> but uh, if you leave your contact information, I'm sure we'll send you off some kind of lovely <laughs> toaster. Or Perfect. I need a toaster. So, yeah, the album is a fantastic album. Um, I've been listening to it. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to, of course, get into your history. That's what this show is, um, you know, about is I, I like to discuss, kind of get your background a little bit. 
Sure. Okay. Um, now I know you're from, uh, grew up in the Florida area because I'm also from the Tampa area. I used to live down in Sarasota. I actually was born in New York. Right. Uh, and, and spent most of my childhood there. It's always about, I think 10 or 11 or 12. Then I moved to Florida. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and you were in the Fort Lauderdale area the whole time? Yeah. I lived in an area called Coral Springs, which is about 10 or 15 minutes north of the Fort Lauderdale area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when did you, did you already play guitar when you moved down to Florida or did you look, pick that up when you moved down there? I think right when I moved or no, before I moved down there, I think so, you know, right around nine, 10, 11 is when I started messing around. Okay. And was guitar your first instrument? Well, I wanted to be a bass player. Um, bass is the way but, to go. But yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I don't think my parents realized the difference. Uh, or or either that or weren't very concerned with the difference, or the guitar was on sale, whatever the actual <laughs> origins of the uh, purchase was. Uh, so I got a guitar and, uh, you know, wound up, uh, you know, the rest is history. I would have been a great bass player, but not, if not for the mistake of uh, my parents' purchase. Well, you're a great guitar player, I'll tell you that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Is that a natural thing for you, or did it take some time to really pick up on it? I mean, music, since I can, as long as I can remember, I mean, so going back to, you know, four, three, five, you know, in that, in that kind of area, I, I've just always understood music and it felt like it understood me. And it was always a language that I felt like I could communicate with. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't know if this makes any sense whatsoever, but um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, obviously you put a lot of work into doing things, but I could always hear something and kind of, play it or create it um mm -hmm. you know as long as i can remember um which is fortuitous uh or else i probably would have led a life of crime <laughs> or some other kind of horrible thing right uh so fortunately uh yeah music uh, definitely was you know the thing for me were, were you self-taught for the yeah i mean i mean other than like watching like the older kids in the neighborhood on occasion or like or things like that i mean it took a sporadic lesson here or there but, you know, the formal lessons, the way they were taught back in those days, you know, at the time, like, you know, what I wanted to learn, like those guitar players who probably were not much older than me, but seemed like a lifetime older than me at the time, wanted to teach me the things from their generation. Right. right. Uh, and so I just really never could focus on any of that. Um, yeah, I mean, regular lessons never really worked for me. Mm -hmm. I was always able to just, you know, either... <clears throat> play a turntable or just listen to something and then I could slowly start to figure things out that, that way, whatever I wanted to. So it kind of, I went down that path more than lessons. Right. Right. I, I hear that from a lot of people that take, have had lessons, formal lessons that it just isn't, wasn't what they were looking for. And they went off on their own. I'm a self-taught bass player myself. Um, never had lessons, but I, I think, you know, learning other songs, like I learned, of course, a lot of my favorite band songs back in the day. I think that really, uh, really gives you an education right there. I, it's funny because like the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, I decided to really try to study a lot more from a compositional standpoint and kind of go back and, you know, dive into theory and all these kinds of things. And what I found for me is it really just put a name on things I was already kind of doing. Mm -hmm. like that I like like I would say oh the reason I like that is because it's you know it's from this scale that I always gravitate towards or or this mode I dig you know that's what I always wind up doing 
um, more so than actually educating me on how to do different things. It just really gave me a name or a way to communicate to somebody else. Like, Hey, you know, let's do this. Right. I see. Okay. So when you, um, started in your first bands, were you playing originals or were you doing covers or a mix of both? I really never played in a cover band. Um, and I am the world's worst. Hey, Jason, why don't you come sit in with us and jam, you know, like whipping post. <laughs> like I, I know no songs other than, I don't even know my own songs to be honest with you. Um, so it, it's like my whole superpower I think is really creative, uh, sense. Like I can write songs all day long. I can create things all day long. I can be in the studio all day long and I can kind of do the things that are in my wheelhouse, uh, very comfortably all day long. Um, playing other people's music is something that I never ever did. So I was never, you know, I was always writing songs from, you know, I'm sure we jammed whatever cat scratch fever or something like that when we were just starting. Uh, but yeah, never really played in a cover band. That's interesting. So when you, um, if you're not a big jammer or anything, when you go in to write a song like it or a solo, a lead, are you planning that or are you just seeing what comes out? This is going to sound uh, even more bizarre than the other things I will say. <laughs> but uh, music to me, like songs come to me at, uh, all at once, um, generally. Like um, even to a certain degree, a lot of the lyrical content, just in my babbling it out with the melodies and stuff like that, I tend to hear. So the biggest battle for me is to not be distracted before I put everything kind of down on uh, in the studio, which makes me a horrible collaborator because while i'm doing something if someone else is in the room is like you know what we could do i'm like dude shut up yeah i gotta get you know and that's bad on my part it just makes me a terrible like bandmate uh but that's just the way my brain works like i just i just kind of get these bursts of information and uh if i don't respect that and kind of put it down i don't retain it so it's not like i can go back to it an hour later and go oh you know that was going to do this um, and that's just, you know, for better or for worse, that's the way I've kind of always written. And, uh, you know, it, it works for me. So with that being said, I mean, did you bring most of those songs completed to the band? I mean, the vast majority of stuff I demoed out and sang all the harmony stuff on and kind of presented them in that way. We jammed a few things up at different times mm-hmm. in just rehearsals. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody had obviously, I mean, Phil's drums were definitely his i didn't write drum parts for him he sure. he contributed uh you know what he did um you know and that's not to undercut anybody else's abilities but the m- majority of the song structures and stuff like that were brought in by me uh-huh. not in every sense but uh i would say 80 85 i see i see now phil's playing really brought i thought he's one of my favorite drummers i've told him that and uh he's just a killer drummer I mean, he's a great drummer. Yeah, yeah. And his style, he's almost got that, uh, he brought a little bit of a tribal sound, I thought, to a lot of your songs. We were super uh, heavily influenced and blown away. Like, I think the problem with Saigon Kick initially was we were way out of sync with what was happening at the time. Not that we wouldn't have tried to do it, because uh, hair metal, I, I, I call it hair, it doesn't bother me, the term, but I mean, sure. or metal, whatever it was, glam metal, pop metal, whatever that was at the time was something that we would have done except you know we, we just were, we just didn't do it well I, I mean compared to all the other bands 
Um, and I, I wasn't really into writing for the most part about, Hey, I got a fast car and a super hot chick and all <laughs> right. that. I mean, that just wasn't my thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with writing. There's a million songs about that are great that are about that. Um, so when we saw Jane's addiction, uh, I want to say in like early on, we saw them open for Iggy pop. So this would have been on their EP. It was right before nothing shocking came out. And, uh, for me, it was like, Oh my God. It, this is a heavy band, but they're not silly. And it had this like kind of voodoo Zeppelin tribal, you know, thing going on. And, you know, I think we were like <clears throat> such massive Queen fans and such massive Beatle fans and Bee Gees fans and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think the melding of those two kind of sensibilities was where we kind of finally felt like, you know, that that's where that this is something or a world we could live in. And I mean, and to their credit, I mean, I think Soundgarden was really early on that scene. And, uh, you know, there's a few of those bands that were way ahead of even Nirvana or, you know, Alice in Chains or any of that stuff. There was a couple of bands that were doing really cool alternative heavy music mm-hmm. that wasn't like synth based or, you know, or pop alternative music. Um, and that, that was a massive. So seeing Jane's Addiction, I think, was a game changer for you know, not only all of us as writers or whatever, but I think for Phil specifically too, as a, as a drummer and, and the way we kind of approach a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How did you meet those guys? Did you seek them out or did they find you? How'd that happen? Um, I think Phil and I grew up in the same town. So we've probably known of each other since we were, I gotta say 13, 14, something like that. Uh-huh. Um, so we grew up in the, you know, and he had been in a, like a different band with some people. So we, we kind of knew each other like that. Um, and we were just the, you know, the, the truth of the matter is the, I think the three or four of us were the only guys that couldn't get in other bands in our local scene. I mean, I don't even think we liked each other that much. Uh, it was just like, we were the last ones at the dance with no partners. Right. Uh, everybody else started bands and everybody else was doing great. And, you know, and, and it was just like, well, either we play with each other or we don't have a band kind of scenario. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then how, how did you guys um, pursue your record deal? Did you send out we demos? No? no, we didn't even have a demo tape really, uh, or pictures or any of that stuff. We started playing uh, some, you know, like the typical story in, in, in South Florida. We played a place like the Treehouse, if I remember correctly, and these little clubs in front of like ten people. We begged and begged and begged, "Can we please go on at six thirty when the barbacks are just setting?" Whatever. And we never played covers, so we were just doing original stuff. And there would be like 10 people. And, tw- and then all of a sudden there was 20, and then there was 50. And, you know, over the course of about a year, year and a half, we were, you know, selling out, you know, two nights with 1,500 people each night. And uh, all the labels literally came down to us. Um, and we played one night at the Button South. And uh, Jason Flom was there, and Michael Wagner was happened to be in town. I think Flom brought Wagner down, if I remember correctly. And it was literally like we played the show, went across the street to whatever the restaurant was, like a Wags or a Denny's or something. And right. you know, and Wagner was like, "Well, you know, I have like three weeks before I start the new. I think it was either Skid Row's next record or Extremes record. And if you guys want to be in LA on Monday, we can do the record, just like that. And that's kind of how it happened, yeah." Wow. I mean, what was going through your mind at that at Wags? I mean, this we just had a stupid belief. I think the, the the you know the belief of youth where you just, you know, of course this is going to happen. 
it's only now I think we can all look back and go like, wow, you know, that was super fortuitous. Because yeah. If not for that, a back to my life of crime story or, you know, whatever, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> right. But, uh, it, it, but, you know, at the time, I think every band, if you're going to have a chance at, at, you know, being successful, you, you just have to believe that it's going to happen. Right. Um, so it seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So here you are now working with Michael Wagner. I mean, what did he bring to you that first album? I mean, the guy's career and legendary status speaks for itself. But I, I think what he did with us specifically was he kind of let us do what we were doing and didn't try to produce it and didn't try to make, you know, some of the other records that he had made. Right. He kind of understood what we were and was like, just kind of set it up. And he created this environment where it was literally, we'd get to the studio, jam a bit and do our thing. And then the next thing you know, we were having like an eight hour dinner these insane restaurant things he would throw and there'd be, you know, ridiculous amounts of money spent and partying and drinking and everybody would have a blast. You didn't even realize you were making a record. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, Oh, we're spending a couple of hours doing the record. And then the rest of the time we're just hearing his stories and hanging out and LA and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we weren't from LA or part of that whole scene. So it was kind of neat for us all to see that for the first time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that record felt like it, you know, you couldn't make a record without noticing it any easier than he made it for us. Like we never, you know, he never had that kind of like, you never felt pressured or like, Oh my God, you're recording right now. Or it just sure. felt like do what you guys do. And we're going to kind of capture that. And most importantly, is everybody cool with Indian food tonight? Right. Right. Now were all those, all those songs completed when you went out there or did you have to finish some in the studio? Uh, all of them were done Okay, for the first record. So it was sure. pretty easy for you guys then. Just go out there I, mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like we put this band together and two weeks later we got signed to a big deal. I mean, we'd put a lot, right. everybody individually, and we put a ton of work into it. And we promoted and, and did, a, you know, we did a ton of shows. And, and I think we outworked almost anybody in our area at the time um, to get there. Um, so, you know, these songs we had rehearsed, we had practiced. We were practicing, you know, God, we, I, I think we played seven nights a week, you know, seven eight hours a night we would just sit there and play these songs and, and work and work and work and work so yeah yeah uh, yeah by the time we by the time the opportunity came we were kind of ready you were ready yeah yeah i still have a um it's like a little magazine i don't know if you guys put it out independently or or one of the magazines down in the miami area did it but it's a little newspaper type magazine of it's like a saigon kick fan thing or something it was free i think i picked it up at some club one day Hmm. I, 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 you know, I know there was a bunch of local magazines that were super kind to us. And yeah, when I find um, it, I'll send you a picture of it. Maybe you'll remember it. But for I, sure, I saw it the other night, and I was like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Um, all right, so you do your album, and what label was that with? It was actually uh, we initially signed with Atlantic, and then there was a merger with Michael Douglas. Uh, he had a company called Third Stone. Um, so right. this kind of joint venture uh, album kind of structure they did for that uh, first record. Right. And then you decided to release uh, What You Say was the first single? Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And that, was that your choice or was that the label choice? I think it was a, it just, you know, in hindsight, it was probably a horrible choice. Because uh -huh. um, I think it was the most middle of the, you know, the road song on the record. Uh -huh. So it seemed logical to like Atlantic at the time because you got to remember this was like before Alternative had hit. 
Um, so they were still dealing with like the height of the bands from, you know, the late eighties. Yeah. What, so I, they, what, was it 90 when that came out? Our record came out in 91. 91. Okay. So, so it was just as everything was starting to shift. So the radio departments were still like, well, if it's a rock band, we should probably, this is the most palatable song of the record. But I think it really didn't have any of the, not that it didn't even belonged on the record. Mm-hmm. It just was the most vanilla portion of the record. Mm-hmm. Um, did you release another wish. single after that? Because I don't remember another one. I remember the album and you guys, because like I said, I was in Tampa Bay and you guys played a couple 98 rock shows and you know I, I've seen right. you around, but I don't remember another single. Was there a second one? I don't know. To be honest. I mean, I know we toured a lot. And mm-hmm. then, uh, I mean, the record did well, but nothing like insane. It, it did like, I think we sold like 100,000 copies on the first record mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And after touring for like, and I know we went to like Japan and we opened for Ozzy and we had uh, done a bunch of touring. And then I think at some point we were just like, you know, we should probably make another record. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause the lizard came out in what? 92. Not long after. Not too long after. Yeah. 92, 93, maybe the latest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always liked, uh, I think it was colors. I always liked that song. Oh, thanks. Huh? Yeah. Should have released that one. Would have been a hit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> If you can get me in a time machine to talk yeah. to my younger self, I'll definitely put up a fight this time. <laughs> so here we are. All right. So you did your, you released the first album. Now you're on to the lizard, but in that time somewhere, you guys lost Tom or Tom left. I'm not sure what happened there, but what, yes, what you, are, you are with, correct. What happened with Tom? I, I'm not one to really talk about it. Uh-huh. Uh, not that there's anything too surprising here. You know, rock band gets in massive fights with each other is not exactly the most unique story ever told. Yeah. Uh, but it just didn't work out. Okay. Uh, and we had moved on. I always wondered. Okay. And then, um, so, so you found Chris. Um, yes, we did. Chris told me that story. And that was kind of a funny story. He, you guys uh, brought him out from LA at the time, right? Yeah. And and he was just instantly the guy. Yeah. He said you said he went home and you said you had some other guys, but then you called him like the next day or something. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it just like most, you know, in a band situation, I think it's as important as obviously someone being a great musician and being able to bring something to the table. 99% of the time is being able to sit in a room with someone without wanting to kill them. Yeah. Because, because you're just constantly on top of each other, you know, traveling long distances, airports, buses. And uh, he was just obviously a great musician, but just the hang was just instant. Like it felt like he'd always been there. Yeah. Yeah. Now he, he, I asked him something interesting. I said, they didn't ask you to sing when you went out there. And he's like, no, I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know. We probably just liked him so much. We didn't care. <laughs> I mean, he was, he, he's very personable, that kid. Yeah. Cause that's a big part of your guy's sound is the, is the harmonies and stuff. So I was like, wow. But I guess but he did, he, he did sing trim. I mean, all the time on tours and everything yeah, like that. But that's I, don't, what I don't know that we really pressed him on that at rehearsals. Yeah. Or I, auditions or whatever. And I guess, was it just mainly you and Matt doing those vocals? On the records, yeah. Yeah. I did not know that either. That's amazing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's much better than you saying that's horrible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Hey, so so you're recording The Lizard in Sweden, was it? Correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't be afraid to say you'd have no idea what you're talking about because I'm just trying to remember things. Well, half the time I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> well, about. Well, then so. we're even then. Good. 
So why go to Sweden to record an album? Um, I initially, jumping backwards a little bit, um, when I was about 18 or 19, uh, to make a long story short, mm-hmm. um, I wound up getting a call at my house, uh, and it was Jeff Scott Soto, who at the time was like, to me, second maybe only to Ronnie James Dio in terms of like being a metal vocal god. And, and this was Ingray's record was at the height of its power. And uh, Jeff called me up and said, hey, you know, I heard you playing on something and, you know, you want to come to L.A.? And, you know, maybe play on something of mine. So I get on a plane, I go to L.A., we become super good friends. Uh, and then about a month later, I'm home, and I get a call from him saying, hey, why don't you come to Sweden? Uh, because this band called Talisman, which was Marcel Jacob, who played on the Rising Force records and uh, all the first two Ingve records, and just a brilliant bass player. And Jeff and those guys were going to tour all over Scandinavia, and would I want to do the gig? And I was like, course you know sure so i went over and spent a ton of probably spent like almost a year between a bunch of different like two or three month periods going back and forth and doing a bunch of touring so i fell in absolute love with stockholm and then getting ready to do this record i was like well we were looking at different engineers and there was a guy there was a band called the electric boys right and 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 they had their first record out and bob rock had done like half the tracks and this amazing guy named Ronnie Lottie had done the other tracks. And I thought the tracks that Ronnie did, I mean, obviously Bob Rock's a legend, so nothing about him. Sure. But I just fell in love with what Ronnie did. And he happened to be working at this studio in Sweden. And I was like, you know, that's the guy we should be working with. And uh, somehow I bamboozled everybody to go to Sweden. Okay. And then during this time, I wanted to touch on this a little bit too, if you don't mind. But your management that you had at the time, they didn't quite make the right decisions for you guys, right? I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's very easy for a band to sit back in hindsight when things go to shit and say yeah. the manager did this and the label did Blame this. Blame it on that, yeah. Uh, I take full responsibility for my share of idiotic decisions. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's just the way, I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's amazing how many bands have massive hits and are called, you know, call themselves singular geniuses. Uh-huh. And every time something goes to shit, it's like that label sucks and the manager screwed me. And, right. You know, radio guy's an idiot. It's just not the way it is. I mean, sometimes you make great decisions and sometimes you don't. And we made a shit ton of terrible decisions ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think our manager could have stopped us. No. I mean, I'm, I, you don't know me very well, but yeah, I, I can, I, I just... I get something in my head that I want to do and it's like, you know, no, we're going to get these sheep and we're going to make our own jackets and then we're going to tour on the backs of sheep. And it's like, that's just where I'm going. You're and just like, doing it. You know, for better or worse, that's what's going to happen. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so here we are with the lizard. Chris is in the band. Now you're hitting the road. And then, First single off that album, I want to say, was Hostile Youth. Is that correct? Correct. Damn, I'm on a roll. You're on top of it. <laughs> All right. So, and that didn't really run up the charts, right? Well, it, not that it didn't run up the charts. We went to Mexico with a brilliant director named Mark Rocco, who had shot like all the Jane's Addiction. Uh, I don't know if you remember that gift documentary they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of their early videos, like he shot the stop video for them. And, uh, so we go to Mexico and did this whole, like he had this whole concept of like the Santeria and like real 
like in the middle of the jungles, like in Saturday and pyramids and like, you know, that whole thing. <clears throat> and we go to Mexico and we're shooting that video. And at the same time, we're in the, you know, just about wrapping that video shoot up. Uh, we get a call from Doug Morris at the time, legendary record guy. And yeah. he's like, you know, this station in Florida started playing love is on the way. And we're like, well, great. He's like, no, you don't understand. You're selling like whatever it was at the time, like 15,000 records a week in, in, in like South Florida. Like it's like, it's exploding and you have a hit. And, uh, he's like, you have two choices. Really? Ultimately you can embrace that and have a hit or you can, you know, just try to do whatever, you know, just, it's, it's not going to work the other way. Like in other words, we have a hit record, you want it or not. It was kind of the way it was phrased. Uh -huh. And, uh, it, and the record just exploded by itself and just, you know, not, it, it didn't become a phenomenon, but it, it exploded and became a big hit. It was huge. Uh, and, and that kind of derailed the, the momentum or the even focus of doing anything with the first track. So did you rush out and do film that video for the love is on the way? It could have been that much longer, yeah. Uh -huh. Because by the time we got back, I mean, within a couple of weeks, it was definitely clear that you know the song was doing something special. Because MTV was still kind of big at that time, right? They were massive, yeah. Yeah, you, know. yeah. you had to have a video. You had to have a video, and you know, and we were lucky. I mean, in that sense, we we had the number one video on MTV for, if not, I think, a couple weeks. So yeah, yeah. So then you get out on tour with, uh, I think I saw you guys with Extreme on that tour. Yep. Okay. Now we had toured with Extreme on the first record too. Oh, you in did? In Europe. Okay. okay. Yeah, I saw you on the Lizard tour in Tampa with Extreme. And uh, I don't remember how early in the tour, but I'm sure the song was big at that time, right? I don't remember exactly the timeline, but um, probably. Yeah, probably yeah. How was that with Extreme? Those guys seem like pretty cool guys. I've never met any of them or even spoke to them, but I've always wanted to. Yeah, I'm friends with them till this day, all of them. I mean, they're great, great guys. I mean, Pat is like a brother to me. I mean, Pat and I went on and did a couple of things later on. We wound up working on the American Pie soundtrack together, and mm -hmm. we literally collaborate on something, you know, every couple of years. Uh, we wound up talking about, we were actually working on something a couple months back. And Gary's just the greatest guy in the world. And Nuno's obviously a phenomenally talented guy and always been. Yeah, nothing, nothing but kind to me. And their old drummer Paul Geary was super great, and the new drummer uh, Kevin is just a, the nicest guy in the world. Is Paul still managing? Wasn't he managing bands? Yeah, I mean he was managing Godsmack and right. uh, a couple other bands. Um, last time I checked. So, so being on tour with Extreme, did you and Nuno share some uh, some licks, some tips? Not really. No? I mean, Man, I would have loved no. to have been in a room with the two of you guys just playing. I mean, we jammed a couple times, like on, like they picked a song or something like that at the end of the night or like towards the end of the tours. Uh -huh. But, you know, I'm, I'm not, and he, neither is he. Like, you know, generally speaking, like after a thing, like I was more interested in just getting out of there and going to my room or chilling sure. out or doing something different. So uh, in both senses, I mean, in, except for very rarely would we actually wind up being out somewhere and, have a couple of beers or something like that. We didn't really hang too much. Uh -huh. So you're coming off successful album, successful uh, platinum sing platinum single, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you go in to do your third album, Water, and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I mean, we just uh, you know we came to the record ready to record, and there was a lot of inner bullshit, and you know, again, not unique to 
yeah the music story and uh we we went to i mean it's kind of funny because we went to sweden and again uh figured we'd just continue on with what we did and you know right when we got there all things exploded but we had convinced our manager had convinced Atlantic to send all the money over <clears throat> to a bank in Sweden for us because the, the crown, which is their currency had crashed. Ah. And he was like, so if you send all the money now, we'll get like, you know, two yeah, to one yeah, on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So he, they wire all the money over. And then like the next week, you know, Matt left and we were like in Sweden and we were like, so because we were in Sweden and we weren't in New York or LA or even home, we were just blissfully ignorant to any of the ramifications or, you know, implications of, you know, what was going to happen next. So we just really made a record that we wanted to make. And, you know, was, it, it wasn't really too much thought. I mean, I know it should seem like this big thing, but I think because we were so isolated, generally speaking, uh, <clears throat> it didn't really, we didn't realize really much of anything until we got home. So there was no thought of, well, who are we going to get to fill in? It was just automatic? I mean... I had sung so much of the stuff uh, and demoed so much of the stuff from the first two records and the thir- that the guys kind of, you know, knew what I did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, we knew Chris could sing and mm-hmm. we just were like, let's just, let's just move, you know, let's go ahead. That's Obviously crazy. way better singers than, than me, but I think what I do has a signature to it. And yeah. uh, we just felt like we would kind of continue on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, your voice fits right in there. I'm very similar to Matt's. I mean, not maybe not as uh, I don't know how to say it. Maybe not as. Uh, don't make me hang up on you. I'm trying not to. That's why I'm, I'm thinking just about this. No, Matt's a. Matt's you know a what I'm saying? He, he's he, got a richness a, to his voice. And, yeah, and, and he's and he's great. Yeah. Um, the, you know, it, it's not about that. It's about I've always done and created that kind of harmony thing and done that thing, and that's yeah. what I do. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I'm totally comfortable with, you know, what I do. I, I it's, it's not about you know dissing Matt or anything like that. I mean, he's, yeah. he's a great singer, and I hope he does wonderful things. Mm-hmm. You guys still talk? Not at all. No. Well, maybe one day. Never. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so now water is out, and at the time, was the label? Did they promote that album much? They were convinced that there was a song on it that was going to be a massive hit. Um, Which one? And uh, the song called I Love You. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, at the time, they thought that was just going to be the end-all, be-all. And it, strangely enough, it was in Asia. Um, but I think everything was changing so rapidly here um, in terms of just we – were, we were, and I, I, I take no like pride in it. We, we were never really part of the hair metal scene. And we were never really part of the alternative grunge scene. We kind of got stuck in the middle. Um, yeah, that happened to a few bands. Yeah, it, 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 look, there's no. There, I am personally like, you know, hey, we toured the world multiple times, sold a lot of records. I got nothing to complain about. Um, doesn't bother me at all. But I think that that's kind of like where we were because I think the grunge bands kind of perceived us as part of that movement, the other movement, and the other movement always hated us because they thought we were too much of an alternative band mm-hmm. so we, you know um so i think as that started to happen in the states um it, you know this record still did really well i mean it was it, it, it but uh not, i think to the degree that the lizard did a very diverse album i thought compared to the yeah others. i mean that's the way my i mean when the 
the filter came off because we were just by ourselves and I was able to do what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse. I don't have any uh, sense of loyalty to any genre. Right. I mean, I love music. So if I feel like doing a polka thing, then that's what's going on. And if we're going to go to something, you know, industrial, then that's what we're doing and jazz. And that's what we're going to do. And that's the way, that's always the music I loved was bands that kind of did anything. Yeah. And, uh, so I wasn't going to make like a 10 song heavy metal record with a ballad. Right. Right. Uh, just for me. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to do that. It's just, I couldn't do that. Sure. No, I, I like it. I like the diversity on that. Now I was, me being a record executive that I am, I always thought you, that album would have had, if you would have released one step closer at the time as the first single and then released fields of rape, I thought it would have been a bigger hit. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've kind of, and this is going to sound silly, but I, I don't, I don't care. is not the right word. Sure. I don't think about music that way. Yeah. I mean, I think because I, I am totally convinced I have no idea what's going to happen. What I am convinced about is that I'm trying to do the music I want to make in my head and make it the best I can and get that vision out. And then at the end of the day, like even with the new record I just released, I'm like, I'm so thrilled and it's gotten so many amazing reviews and, and the prog rock magazines have totally embraced it. And, you know, it's, it's done so, but it was never part of the mental process of like, Oh, I need to have a hit or I hope this is a hit or I did ballads, not because I wanted to have a hit because I mean, I grew up listening to Barry Manilow. I love those songs. And they're good songs. So you write them. That's good. And, and, and the same point, like, you know, I, I dug some of the Pantera riffs and I dug, you know, all these different things. So that's just where my brain works. And if you're focusing on having, I think if you're going to stick around long enough, you can't derive your, I derive my pleasure from the fact that I get, a, I get to get up every day still at this point in my life and create music and be around musicians. Mm-hmm. If, if you're only going to be happy with a hit or, uh, you know, or a, a huge success, you're going to be miserable because I don't care who you are. You're going to have these waves where it's going to go super high and then no one's going to give a shit about you. You're exactly and then it's right. going to go super high. And then everyone's going to think you're terrible. And then it's, you know, and, and then over time, I think if you're lucky, you develop enough of a catalog where people realize, like, you know, even if you look back about bands like a great band like Def Leppard, you know, they went through the time period where they were the best thing in the world. And then there was a time where everyone was like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. And yeah. now with a little bit of time, everyone's like, no, no, we're really sure that's an amazing band. Um, and you know, Bon Jovi or any of these bands that have, come, that have been around long enough. I mean, you just, you start to realize like those songs were great and those bands were great. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. just the way it is. Yeah. But ultimately you're doing what you've always dreamed of. You're playing music for a living. Yeah. I haven't had, I haven't had a real job my entire life, so that's pretty good. So, yeah. I mean, that's successful right there. So let's move on. So Saigon kick, then you'd released, um, devil in details. Mm-hmm. And then um, a couple more albums after that, right? I'm not familiar with those albums as much. I think we did Devil in the Details, and we might have released one more uh, record in Japan uh, mm. that we did for a label. And then that was kind of the end of that, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And why did you decide to call it quits with that? It was just ran its time or what? Um. I was doing a lot of producing and a lot of writing and I was getting a lot of fun from that. And I think, you know, I just didn't see the virtue of bouncing around the country in a bus pulling up behind some kind of urine smelling rock venue with 30 people at it um, and chasing that. Yeah. 
Um, it, you know, it, to me, it was, it was just, you know, I was, uh, much more interested in being creative and working on the things I wanted to work on. And I didn't, I mean, I, I even at that, I was you know, relatively still young, but I just saw there was like a sadness of like people chasing that, that, that specific thing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I just wanted no part of that. So mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, was happy to, you know, and actually in hindsight, fortunate enough to be able to raise my family and still do stuff that I loved and spend a lot of time, you know, I just didn't see the, you know, having two kids and like, no, dad's going to go play in front of eight people in Sheboygan tonight for right, $15. Right. Like, so, you know, I won't see you for six months. Just, I mean, it made no sense. Yeah, that's no good. So after Saigon Kick, did you form your record label at that time or did you go into the Super Transatlantic? Um, I think we met it in Super Transatlantic, which is we talked about with Pat mm-hmm. um, and we did some stuff, you know. I had some success with that with the uh, American Pie soundtrack and things like that. Yeah, what was that song and, called? Super uh, Super Down. Or super something? Down. Yeah, okay, uh-huh. I remember. And uh, so we, you know, we we did that, and then uh, I was producing more stuff, and you know, ha- had a lot of friends and contacts still from at the labels. And uh, I, I when I would say I was starting to find different bands, and then I wound up partnering with MCA at the time, uh-huh. and discovered a band called Nonpoint. Right. So that was your first and band? That was our first label band thing where we kind of did a, well, yeah, we signed them to MCA first and I produced that record. Okay. And then we signed a few other bands over there. Darwin's Waiting Room was another band from South yep, Florida that yep. was great. I remember them. I did some demos at one point with Newfound Glory uh, very early on. And then it just started, you know, going from there. Then I started, did a couple of records for Immortal. Um, and, at, at some point, MCA said, hey, do you want to start a label? And we did a label deal with them, which was fantastic. And then we found bands like Skindred. Yeah. And, how uh, did you How did you find Skindred? That's an I awesome in, band. Yeah. I mean, I was in the office in, of MCA in New York Universal's building or whatever, and some manager was in there. Uh, and I just heard one of their songs uh, called Brain Killer. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I still think to this. I mean, I talk to Benji all the time. As a matter of fact, Benji's on my record. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I just think he's the greatest singer in metal rock history, just about. I mean, he's wonderful. He's in the top 10 of all time. And I just heard what he did, and I was like, this is amazing. I've always been a dance hall fan. And uh, the combination of those kind of influences with metal, but not in like a stupid way, just the interesting rhythmic breakups and, and what he does. I don't think anybody can do it better than him. And uh, fell in love with the band, and I was like, this is I have to have this. So they had been signed to BMG initially. And then as their record was about to come out, which always happens, you know, the label fell apart and, you know, this management team is being, you know, kind of taken over by the new management team. So no one knew what to do with the record. Mm. And I made a call to the, whoever the label head was in England. I was like, look, I know you're going to drop this band. You hate them. You know, (laughs) what if, what if I do this, you know, just to take them off your hand. And, uh, they, they, they eventually said yes, which was amazing. And then uh, I wound up starting the process with MCA. And then MCA merged with Geffen right Jeez. as the first single was exploding. And I'm like, this is horrible. Uh, because now, you know, the Geffen people are like, well, it might be a hit, but it might not be a hit. And the whole transition's happening. So I finally convinced uh, 
the head of business affairs, who was a really great guy, he was very kind to me. And I was like, just let me take this, please. And he, and he kind of like got rid of it for me. Uh-huh. And then I took it over to Jason Flom, my old friend. Right. And we had a really great success with it. It sold for the time. It sold almost 400,000 records. Wow. Yeah. I remember first hearing it and I was like, who is this? And then the band I was in at the time, we ended up, we played a couple of the Vans Warped Tours. And I think they were on one of the, I forget what year it was, but I showed my band, Skindred, and they were just blown away too. Yeah, Benji's the, I mean, the whole band's phenomenal, but Benji's just, I, I don't know how that guy is not one of the all-time biggest. He's, they're still killing it. I mean, they're in Europe playing, you know, 30, 40,000 people festivals every weekend pretty much. Yeah, that's um, awesome. That's awesome. So working in the in behind the scenes kind of with your label, I mean, did you learn a lot doing that that you wish you would have known? Or did you, did you, stuff that you learned in Saigon Kick, did you know not to do with your label? Or, you know, did they? You know? I mean, I tried to approach it from a music standpoint, like, you know, meaning that I was hoping I could help these bands, uh, you know, avoid some of the things, the bad things that I was responsible for. Yeah. And, uh, and, and make better decisions. And, and most importantly, you know, when I felt passionate about, you know, what they did, I wanted to have other people hear it. I mean, so it, you know, we got super lucky. I mean, even bands like Carnival and it goes on and on. I mean, Ankla, we did, we did a, a band called Fiction Plane, which is yep. mm-hmm. a Sting's son's band, which is a brilliant band. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was an amazing time. I mean, to, to, to you know, I just become like a, a lunatic advocate, right. uh, where I would just, you know, I, I I would just use blunt force trauma to do anything I could to get those bands on tours, or on Conan, or on the Tonight Show, or Ozfest, yeah. or Warped. I mean, there was just no, you know, I, there was nothing I wouldn't do uh, to try to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit I, that I know of you, um, you, uh, you seem like the guy that I would want in my corner when it came to that. Well, I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> There's a ma- there are many people who would tell you the opposite, but uh. yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, it happens. But uh, so, do you still have the label? Yeah, I mean, the problem or the you know, which is not it's pretty obvious to everybody is that those were the last real days of a label being able to positively affect someone's career. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're Adele or or Taylor Swift. I mean, I think then there's still a real viable reason to be on a major label with that machinery. <clears throat> but when, when all the record stores disappeared and then Best Buy stopped selling CDs and everybody stopped selling everything. And it, it just became it, very frustrating for me because I, I took everything personally, mm. like, you know, um, and I wanted to be able to do something uh, and make, and every band we had, I think I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, we had a lot of success with all those bands. And for the most part, I mean, there's always bands that you wish could have connected, but um, I'm really proud of what we did do and what we, and the bands that did connect. And, uh, but I just don't, I don't know that that world exists that way anymore. Do you think that will ever come back? Um, I don't know. I don't know that it needs to. I mean, I think, (laughs) I think it was its own unique little time and I'm glad that I got to kind of straddle those two worlds. I love the way things are now. Um, I love the fact that I can, you know, work in my studio and, you know, finish something at three in the morning 
and at four in the morning, some kid in Korea is downloading it. I mean, that's amazing. Right. right. Um, especially for me, because I have like, you know, a million ideas constantly flowing. So the ability to just kind of directly be with whoever digs what I do and do things whenever I want. And I'm not waiting two years. And then I'm not kind of, not that there's anything wrong with Best Buy and not that there's anything wrong inherently with the way, you know, radio operates. Yeah, no, I know. It's just, but to make music and then have to sit there with some guy named, you know, uh, Jimmy Boner in the morning show and be like, you know, dude, my song's great. Well, you know, 80 million other people are telling me that, you know, and to play that whole game, just, it it can, it can make you uh, question the reason to live, Um, (laughs) you know, or sitting with sales meetings and all that bullshit. Um, Uh, Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, I mean, you, obviously you've been in a band, so you know Mm. the drill. It's Mm. just like, or talking to promoters or whatever. I mean, not that they're inherently evil or bad people. They're all trying to do the right thing Mm -hmm. uh, for them. But (laughs) yeah, it's just enough to make you like, you know, it's, it's a horrible business. Yeah, and on your Bandcamp page, you've got a shit ton of songs on there. Yeah, the funny thing is that kind of brought me back into all this because after working with everybody and producing everybody, or producing tons of bands and, and getting to work with all those bands, I was like, you know, I just want to get back to writing. Like, I, I want to create this writing experiment where it, I'm going to write, record, and release a song in about 24 hours. Like, I'm not going to spend three weeks getting a snare reverb and all this stupid shit that you know you can wind up doing. I yeah. just want to write as much as possible and kind of put a limitation on myself. And then I'll just put it up there, you know, for, for whoever wants to find it. And of course, as soon as you don't have a plan, things go really well. <laughs> right. And it's, you know, relatively speaking, it's exploded into this really nice thing, which has far exceeded any of my expectations. And it's, it's grown a really, you know, loving, wonderful, supportive cult, thing where you know i have about 150 songs i did in a couple of years and uh yeah it's just been it's been amazing and, and it's just it's like i said it's just there's something wonderful about making music and just having it accessible to whoever wants to hear it right away and i'm lucky enough i mean the the problem i think for a new band is as not that by any means i i've hit justin timberlake status but i've had i've had a lifetime of building a little bit of a name so that there's enough people looking for what I'm doing um, that I, I get some residual benefit from that. Um, being a brand new artist is it's got to be just petrifying. Yeah. Imagine that these days. I mean, to get anybody's attention is just impossible. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? I don't know. I, I, I wish I could tell you that. Hence the slowdown of my signing on, uh, uh, with the label. Yeah. You yeah. Know? What are you going to do? Unless... Unless I knew that I could light myself on fire and run into a building and make something happen for somebody in some special way, I just don't know what you're going to do. I mean, no one sees ads. There's no place to push it. Um, you know, the editorial stuff, you know, either you get on a Spotify playlist or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or it becomes a viral YouTube thing or and you're just kind of at the mercy of the winds. But, hey, that's kind of a cool thing, too. Yeah, it is. One thing I did find from you, which I was not aware of, was uh, Where Dreams Go to Die, that album. Oh, cool. Yeah. Excellent album. Like, oh, I was thanks, blown man. away. I love the piano and the vocals and really get to hear your voice in those songs. I'm glad you like it. I mean, the, the fun, the, those were all done as like, it's kind of funny because I, I learned a lot about people just through that. Because every song I released was initially put up as a single. And a group of people would buy those singles. 
And then I would take this, like when I got to four or five of them, I would repackage them. Uh, package them is a strong word because it's just digital, but I put them <laughs> in a little EP. And then a ton of people that would never buy the single would buy the EP. Interesting. So like, it's just funny the way people like to digest their music. Yeah. You prefer to do the single route? Like your new album is a, is a full album, but I mean, do you like the single route compared to a full album? Um, I think they both have their virtues. I just think we don't live in a time where people have the time to listen to a record mm -hmm. um, or live the lifestyle where, you know, generally speaking, they're going to sit down and listen to 10 or 12 songs at one clip. So I think it, in one sense, it's kind of cool when people get to just, you know, listen. Like if Jane's Addiction collaborated with the Beatles and, you know, Elvis Costello was fronting it, um, as excited as I'd be, I don't know that I could sit there and listen to a whole record, like just right. time-wise. But I know right. if they released a song every week or every month, I'd be all over it and play that thing 10 times and like really get into it. So I, I, I you know, I guess it depends on, you know, on yeah. what you're trying to do too. I mean, a lot of bands make records that shouldn't be making records. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like everybody thinks they're making the wall <laughs> um, or, you know, or Zeppelin physical, you know, physical review or whatever. So I, I think a lot of bands, you know, I, I kind of like what the Foo Fighters are doing is really cool. You know, like there's five, six singles and then it kind of comes with a record and there's another four or five songs later on. But you kind of really got into half the record before the record even came out. Yeah. is maybe the smart. I mean, who knows? Why did you decide to um, do your new album on full, a full record? Um, I got asked to. Really? <laughs> so I was like, you know, I, ruined I, I, your I mean, plan. I was like, all right, you know, that's kind of a neat, like, let me just mix it up. Cause they had just released 150 songs by themselves or in some kind of smaller bite-sized packages. And then the idea of maybe trying to, to do an album, um, was just creatively interesting to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm super like, I, I, I hate saying I don't care. It was more like just a personal challenge to me. I wasn't really worried about whether people, you know, yeah. were going to digest it that way or not. I was like, wow, it'd be kind of fun to make a double album uh, for the vinyl package and uh, just see if I could artistically make something that didn't, you know, didn't feel like it should have been three songs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you, this album, I mean, you have a lot of guest artists on there. What, where did that idea come up? Well, I mean, they're all people that I obviously have an immense amount of respect for and um, are, are just brilliant, in my opinion. Um, and I've always wanted to have it. You know, they're all friends uh, to some degree. And, you know, I mean, I've known Butch Walker, in, you know, since the South Gang days. Right. When he was you know doing that stuff. We've kind of – so – and obviously he's gone on to just do amazing things. And Devin Townsend – is is you know, one of the geniuses of our time and he's been super kind to me and clay cook from the zach brown band is a, another guy who's just you know an unstoppable force of great music and you know i can go down the list it'll take us another half hours to name everybody <laughs> on the record but it was just a personal thrill to get to work with all of them and have them say yes i mean if nothing else was like you know i, I figured look i'm gonna ask all my buddies and i'm sure every single one of them is gonna come back and tell me why they can't or have some wonderful excuse or they're on tour and valid 
reasons is what I expected. And, and every single one of them said yes. So did, and it was just just such a great experience. Did you pick the parts you wanted them to do, or I mean, what happened there? Um, the songs were pretty much written and, and kind of uh, all fully sketched out, and then I would just send it and say, "Hey, what do you hear?" You know, and, mm-hmm. and it's if I tried to do this again, it would be an absolute disaster. Right. Because I was the couple of things I was worried about is like, man, if so and so is so amazingly kind to want to contribute to my record. And then they work on it and they send it back to me and I don't like it. It's going to be horrible. Yeah. It's just going to be a horrible experience. But I'm telling you, like every time I opened a file, I was like, that's, you know, the point goes back to, I guess, if you pick great people, you get great results. Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to get a bad result with Butch Walker or Devin Townsend or any of the Bumblefoot. Yeah. I mean, they, they just don't do bad things. Yeah. Yeah. So then you released the first single was Apology. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, that was a heavy track. A little closer to Saigon Kick style, right? I mean, I think there's always going to be some of that DNA. Yeah, because it's you. Right. Um, but you had the you had the, the vocals. Everything was on there. Um, and then the second single, you had two, right? What was the second one? Uh, I was Bring Out Your Dead. Bring Out Your Dead, which was a real heavy one. Yeah, thinking. I mean... Not, not not unlike Apology, I think, in terms of texture, but uh, yeah, it was heavy. Mm-hmm. I like that song. That was a good Thanks, one. Man. And then uh, you do get a little into the prog. I don't know much about prog, so I really can't talk about it that much. But it, Neither do I. <laughs> but so. from what I understand of prog, it, it, some of it was a little proggy, right? It's funny. I was working in, a, in another project with a drummer. Do you know Jonathan Mover? Jonathan Mover. He did, played drums did with work? Satriani okay, uh, okay. And, and Steve Vai, and he played with Mick Jagger, and he played with Aretha Franklin, and he played GTR uh, back in the day. So he had decided he was going to do this whole prog thing uh, a couple of years back. And he's like, you know, do you want to play it? And I'm like, well, to play with you, the answer is always going to be yes. But I just got to tell you, like, I have no idea what the hell prog is. Like, I, I have no concept of it. Like, uh, to me, like, if you're going to talk about Genesis, it's like the Phil Collins hits. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know the stuff. And he's like, no, you'll love it, you'll love it. So, uh, I wound up getting through the, you know, working with him, like having to do all these like really intricate, like Old King Crimson songs and uh, all the stuff that I never heard in my life. So I kind of got this weird crash course in like thinking differently than I normally would. And um, I think some of that seeped into my brain from a, uh, maybe some, you know, like a time signature standpoint or just kind of like open it. I wouldn't call what I do prog by any stretch. Although, right. you know, like a lot of the big prog magazines and the prog, you know, editorial Spotify stuff was like, this is a prog record. I was like, okay. That's <laughs> fantastic does that mean i have to wear a cape or what is that i don't <laughs> yeah, even know what that means uh but yeah so it was it was super cool um to get embraced by them and the cool thing about it, i think where prog is my understanding of prog i don't speak on behalf of all prog yeah uh but is that they don't care i mean it so it can be anything from like animals as leaders to old yes to i think they're just more about there being no rules uh-huh. and that's where i think our uh we cross paths in a really wonderful way. It's just that like, I clearly have no concept of doing the right thing. <clears throat> and, uh, and they kind of 
are like, yeah, do more of that, which is perfect for me. Yeah. Do you find that you've uh, gained new fans that weren't aware of you before with this album? Totally. I mean, and that, that's been the most rewarding part. I mean, obviously, I'm super thankful for all the people that have stuck with me and, and been a part of the whole journey. Um, but it's so amazing to be, like I said, on these, you know, when you look at like some of the Spotify prog metal playlists with like a ton of like new bands and people are like, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is, it's just from their perspective is like, oh, this is a new thing. Yeah. And had no idea that there's any other part of it. So that, that I mean, that's, that's yeah. awesome. To me as a songwriter, if you can do stuff that in any way, shape or form, you know, touches a pulse or stays relevant, um, it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Tell me about, um, you've been doing some stuff with Jeff, I believe, right? Some acoustic gigs? Yeah. What, sure. Why'd you decide to do that? Just to get out and play or what? Yeah. I mean, I thought, you know, there's nothing more humbling and, and, and to see if your songs actually have legs is that to take an acoustic guitar and, and go out and do, you know, a one man kind of show uh -huh. and, and, and see, and, and, and in fairness also it's a great attempt to learn how to you know, see if I could have any legs in stand up comedy. I figured <laughs> if I book myself as a comedian and I flop, people are going to be horrified. But if I book it as like a singer songwriter thing and my jokes flop, I could always, you know, whip out love is on the way. And yeah. Yeah. That, people forget time. about it. So um, that was the initial thing I started doing. I started booking a lot of solo acoustic shows. And sure enough, like, because there was no real plan other than the challenge, um, started doing really, really well and, you know, started selling out in New York and Chicago and all over Florida where we played Vegas. And then uh, I said, Jeff, you know, like, if you, whenever you're not doing Trans-Siberian Orchestra or Sons of Apollo, we should just pair up. It'd be fun because we've been friends for ever. Yeah, and he's like, sure. So we wound up doing that, and it, you know, and uh, it's just grown into this amazing thing. Like, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, but uh, you know, the people have just been amazing. The venues have been su super, super cool. Like singer songwriter tables and chairs. And, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. it's been the most fun I've ever had live. Nice. You and Phil should go out on a comedy tour. Phil's Phil's got a, a <laughs> bunch of new stuff coming out, so. Uh, yeah. But he's a very funny guy. <laughs> he is a funny guy. So when is the last time you did one of these acoustic shows? Did you do any recently? Um, I guess it would be like right towards the end of the pandemic. Okay. I'm sorry, the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, uh, the beginning. Be the last, yeah. So, the, you know, we're supposed to do a bunch coming up here in October, November. Um, we're supposed to do New York, Chicago, Boca, Tampa. Uh, Myrtle Beach. And now uh, Pigeon Forge, uh, the Monsters on the Mountain thing. Myrtle Beach. Uh, I wish. <laughs> um, Bluffton. We're coming to Bluffton. Bluffton, are you? I'll yeah, that yeah. up. I yeah, don't sure. think that's to too far. I don't actually know where it is, but I always hear about it, so it might not be too far. I don't think it's... Well, it's it's an hour and a half north of Charleston. Okay, so it might be about an hour and a half from here then. It's just a different direction. Yeah, so Jeff and I are going there. We're doing Atlanta. Uh, in theory, of course, the world seems to be ending again. So right, we'll have right. To, we'll have to see what starts to happen uh, coming months. But yeah, so, you know, and then a bunch of touring stuff for next year and uh, releasing a new single actually next week. Next week? Which um, one? Pardon? Which one? Uh, the song's called, it's a brand new song, not from the last record. It's a oh, new song. Okay. Um, it's called Human Head. And it's really the darkest, sickest horror pop song ever written. I'm very proud of myself. 
That sounds um, awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I've, I've got another 50 something songs in the works um, that I'll probably start to do a bunch of singles leading up to at some point, another you know full record uh, at some point early next year. And yeah. then a bunch of touring days. Fortunately, the record did you know, really well within reason. And, there's all kinds of like once the world opens back up opportunities to kind of take that because it just seems like a it, the records will be so interesting to play live um, yeah. that I'm you know I just want to make sure that we give it a a, a go at uh, a few festivals and things like that. Do you have any ideas of how you're going to do that? Like, are you going to try and bring in these guests that appeared on the album, or are you going to have just a a band? Yeah, I mean, it'll it'll be dependent on everybody's schedules because obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's been sitting home for the last year and a half, so everyone's going to try to be on the road at the same time. Yeah, uh, probably so. But yeah, I mean, everybody would love to do stuff whenever, whenever we can. And um, at the same time, you know, I'd like to put together a band of like super, you know, new, unheard of, great musicians that I've discovered. Just because I think it's like, you know, so we have a half old guy, half new guy contingent on the road. Right. Would be would be my dream. Right. Well, that sounds fun. In theory. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this before we uh, before we go. But tell me about your gear that you use when you're recording and live, I guess, um, because you get such a great tone and heaviness to your sound. Well, thank you very much. Um, I right as of the last record and things like that, I've been using. I've been with this company called Victory Ampli- Amplification. They're out of the UK, and they just make these amazing heads and cabinets that I I, I love. Um, guitar wise. I've been messing around with a couple of different things. I mean, there's a weird uh, Paul Reed Smith. It's called an NF3. So it, it kind of looks. It's the earlier version of the Silver Sky that John Mayer has, kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. like the, it's, it's it's like the earlier version of that. And I have a a couple of like I have a Meridian, which is made by the guys who made uh, Nuno's first N4. Okay. Um, they made me a guitar years back. Uh, they also made Chris Squire's basses, um, some of those basses. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not really too much of a gear nut. Um, I like to keep it pretty simple, Yeah. Um, generally speaking. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I have anything too elaborate. Um, Do you ever record w- with, like, uh, simulators and stuff, or do you always mic up your amps in the studio? Um, I'm going more and more through um i have like this universal audio aux box or actually i just started using now and i love it even more is the two notes captor x so my head goes into this box basically Uh um and it goes digitally from that with a some cabinet simulation into the recording ring and that is really more for the i mean i have the mic and i have the cabinets and everything's all set up to go but it lets me i have such a limited attention span the way i have everything set up now in my studio is I can jump from song to song instantaneously yeah. and not be like married into any one thing. And I find that to be a really creative, like kind of liberating process just to be able to do anything at any time. I hate being bogged down and, you know, you're trying to do something and then you wind up, you know, going down the wormhole of like, what delay is this? And right. then you realize two hours later you have no song, you forgot <laughs> what you were doing. But this amazing delay. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I try to avoid that. You know, I try to make sure, like, you know, I can. You know, as a matter of fact, the more I write, the more I try to keep it as easy and you know, just effortless. I just don't want to get bogged down in any kind of like 
where is this or how do I change that or as quick as possible. Right. And I'm assuming you have everything set up in your house studio. Yeah, I have an actual, I mean, I owned a studio in South Florida for a long time. So we had like the the full real deal Neve console. And Mm. uh, I was lucky enough to take all that stuff with me when we moved up here, the stuff I wanted. Yeah. Um, And uh, so I don't have like just a regular home studio. I'm very lucky that I have a pretty much all the bells and whistles I need. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, you've been very successful um, with your career and, you know, Kudos to you, man. It sounds like you're always writing, which is awesome. Well, I mean, same. I mean, I'm assuming you're a musician. I mean, I think that success is just you know being creative and doing what you do. I mean, that's you know that I, I that's where I put my you know effort is just you know focusing on being creative and trying to keep you know being better. It doesn't mean you're ever gonna necessarily. It's not about recapturing the flame, right? Uh, uh, you you may or may never do that, but uh, if you just focus on trying to be better yourself and be better musician, better player, you know, you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bass player, actually. Um, that's why I said earlier, bass is the way to go. Look, I, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to actually have seen Jocko Pastorius live. Really? That must have been amazing. Was, by accident. By accident. He was, yeah, he was. We we were in. Hollywood, Florida, and there was some band playing this band show, uh, and he was actually doing it because he had to pay off like a debt to the police for some reason. He was like, it was like a work release program, so it was like him and Mike Stern, and I was just you know thirteen, fourteen years old, and I just could not believe. So bass players have left a massive impression on me. I mean, it, 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 probably more than guitar players, yeah, in many ways. I'm such a massive fan. <laughs> yeah, I remember Chris had told me that. Uh, you guys were doing something in the studio and you wanted to play the bass or something and gave him the guitar. Yeah. He's a great guitar player. So yeah, that's what he says. I I still have a bass sitting right here. I play, you know, all I, I love it, man. And I was lucky enough to play with the, actually he played on my records. I don't know if you know who Kevin Scott is. Kevin Scott. Nope. Doesn't sound familiar. He plays with, um, do you know who Jimmy Herring is? Nope. Okay. He's the guitar player in widespread panic now. Okay. Um, and but but Kevin plays with like all these like uber heavy jazz cats out of New York like Wayne Krantz and um, who played with like Steely Dan and all this kind of stuff like so he's just and the cool thing about him is that while he can do all the insane jazz stuff he's a massive metalhead so he's totally into like Meshuggah and Maiden and it's like so cool to have a guy that like can do all that stuff but plays aggressively because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than like a, a college jazz musician in my opinion i hate the way they play but but kevin plays like he's in mashuga even when he is playing jazz and it's like the best of both worlds uh, you got to check him out uh, i will he's just a monster i will all right so people want to check out all your songs they can find that at your band camp site yeah i mean and i try to update you know social media as much as possible with what i'm doing or where i'm at and, mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's a good place to start for sure. And then your website, I believe, just links to your Bandcamp, correct? Yeah, I mean, I should be more aggressive, but I just don't have time. Wow, well, I, I mean, to, really, what do you need it for? Really, you know? I don't think anybody pays attention to websites anymore. Mm-mm. So, but what what is that address? Jasonbeeler.com. Okay, Jasonbeeler.com will take you to the Bandcamp site. And I'm pretty much Jason Beeler everywhere. So Twitter, Instagram, right, uh, Facebook, whatever. Right. Awesome, man. Well, listen, it was great talking to you. Um, 
I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to. Hey chat man, with thank you, for you so much for having me. I'm sorry uh, it took so long to kind of connect schedules, but I'm, I'm glad we did. Yeah, it happens. You know, it happens. But all right, Jason. Well, listen, man. I'll try and get out there to the Bluffton show if that happens, and then I'll catch up with you in person. Sounds good, man. Thanks. All right, buddy. See you. Take care. Bye. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms. 